Hey, Pete Gardner, how you doing? Hey, Glenn. This has been a long time coming, my friend. Yeah, it has. It has. It has. Um, you're uh, you're kind of quarantined in in England right now, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, obviously, my family are back in Northern Ireland. I'm living in Kent and in, uh, in the east of England at the moment. So, um, so yeah, I've been uh, been here for a little while. Wow, wow. And is your sister stuck in England too, or is she is she in Ireland? She's um, no, actually, she she joined the RAF, the Royal Air Force, here uh, about two, about two years ago. And um, yeah, she is based in England. She's um, she's she's based in uh, a place called High Wycombe in England. But because of the COVID situation, she was actually sent home last November uh, to work from home. So she's actually been in northern. She's stuck in Northern Ireland at the moment, and oh, she's wow. waiting to get back to England. So we're in completely opposite situations. I'm, I'm sort of been here for for nearly a year, trying to get back home to see my family, and she's mm -hmm. been she's been with my mom and dad since November, um, and she's probably <laughs> going to be coming back to her job in uh, May or June time. Wow, I mean that's that's yeah. crazy. You so know, it'll it, be it, difficult of a trade off. Yeah, it's it's um. Is is Brexit having anything to do with that as well, or? No, no, no. This no. is just purely COVID. Purely COVID. COVID. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't really want to talk about Brexit because honestly, I don't think anybody yeah, outside. Of, I to don't be honest, any... ever. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to say I don't think that anybody outside of the UK actually really understands what's going on, and I'm not sure every anyone in the UK actually understands what's going on. So. Um... No, no, no. Um, there's a line in, uh, that I wrote in a, a song. Uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a song called Pick Your Side. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the lines in it is um, the will of the people is an equation. Goodwill hunting died while trying to solve. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that's pretty. Um, it's it's it holds to this day. Um, yeah. You know, uh, nobody has a clue what's going on with that. And to be honest, nobody really cares. Ever since COVID hit, um, it was sort of like, you know, Game of Thrones, where everybody's fighting amongst themselves. And then the White Walkers start coming in. Mm hmm. Yeah, COVID's like the White Walkers sort of uh, marching towards the wall and, uh, and everybody yeah. forgot about their own little squabbles. So every, everybody was, um, uh, nobody talked about Brexit for, uh, for, for the whole of last year that I can remember. Yeah, no, it, it, it did completely fall off the news cycle, you know, even, even in the States. Um, yeah, the one, one good thing to come out of, of COVID was um, the fact that I didn't have to listen to Brexit um, talk for, for a few months. <laughs> You know, not, again, I, we said we're not going to talk about this, but I, I just saw a news report this morning, I think it was, that um, there have been there's been 100 billion euros transferred out of out of, you know, London exchanges back into Ireland in the last like 24 hours. Now, that's a lot right. of money. Right. And I think yeah. people didn't really think this all the way through. <laughs> right. It's like, no, OK, no, no, <laughs> you know, um, and the people I feel really sad for actually are. are people who like um um i believe you, you call them pensioners in in the uk but you know retirees is what we would call them here um who have yeah. like moved to like mallorca or whatever and suddenly they're they're in this weird legal limbo right so yeah. i do feel sorry for those people um that you know kind of that are caught in the crossfire um yeah. but let's segue off into something a little more exciting um yeah, definitely you, when I first met you, and we're going to, we're going to talk about that story because that, that was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's set the scene. Yeah. Um, I, 
all I heard when I first met you was, you know, you're a musician and then you said singer songwriter and I was like, Oh fuck. Okay, great. You know, like another one of these people that yeah, you know, I have to be another, like we need another one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. It was like, okay, fuck this, you know? Um, and since you were, it was a, your show was at what the Troubadour, it was the Troubadour, right? Um, uh, mm, the Viper room. I think. The Viper oh room, no, no. It was, Jesus. It was, I think it was the Viper. Yeah, no, it was the Viper room because I remember doing a post, a uh, Facebook post about the Viper room the day I was supposed to play there. And it was, um, I remember talking about, uh, River Phoenix when I was oh, doing okay. the post. Okay. So it must have been the Viper room. Yeah. Yeah. But because it was the Viper room, I was like, Oh God, he's going to be one of those weird, um, um, quasi hair medley sort of but singer songwriter guys you know and i was picturing something like i don't know like you know a brett michael yeah, yeah. something terrible like that you know um, <laughs> and then when i actually heard what you were doing i was like well this is really really interesting right i mean because it's it's americana right i mean a, a lot of what you do is is what would be considered americana but you're obviously not american um, yeah and there's just enough of the mixing of of um you know, some of the more traditional Irish sort of sounds in there as well. Um, like I was yeah. just listening to uh, uh, the Christmas song. I just forgot the name of it. Um, oh, the Christmas. <laughs> it, it's it's ter It's nice outside or it was gross outside, but now it's nice for Christmas or something like that. Yeah, it, ra it rained all night, but it cleared up for Christmas morning. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, of all, that... songs, of all songs you could have chosen to talk about, you picked my my Christmas one. Glenn. <laughs> well, that's, the, the, that's reason, nice. the reason I picked it is because it actually has it's a really interesting song because it's very Americana, you know, kind of, you know, traditional sort of Americana. And then yeah. all of a sudden, you know, the, the Irish fiddles come in and then there's like <laughs> then there's horns in it. So it's like it, it's it's this weird mixture of, of styles, you know, to me. Um, yeah. And, that, that's why I brought that song up because it kind of I think it covers a lot of of ground in, in as far as your your repertoire goes right I mean it was yeah you know it, it was a really fun song to write um because up until then I think I'd spent the 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 whole year prior to writing that song I was writing an album um that's actually not available at the moment it was it used to be available on Spotify but it's not anyway it used it was called Six Train Love Stories and I spent a lot of time um writing that album and it was a really serious uh collection of songs and i spent a lot of time scrutinizing over every single lyric and every single line to make sure all the syllables were perfect and to make sure all the lines were up to the standard that i'd set for myself and um it, when i came uh, around to uh, it was a couple of months before christmas and uh, it just it, it I had always wanted to write a, a really uplifting, fun Christmas song. Mm -hmm. And when it came time to write that song, it was just lovely um, just to let loose and, uh, and just not give a damn and just write something that was uh, unapolog unapologetically happy and joyful. Right. Um, I, I, my family and I, we, um, we have this tradition where every um, Christmas Eve, or, uh, or one of the days leading up to Christmas, we watched the uh, the musical version of A Christmas Carol mm -hmm. starring Albert Finney. And uh, the last um, the last 10 minutes of that film uh, where Ebenezer Scrooge figures out, um, you know, the error of his ways. And he goes absolutely ballistic, running around town, um, you know, giving toys to kids and um, and doubling Mr. Uh, doubling Bob Cratchit's salary. Um, 
that, that there's something about that scene I think that inspired the song. It was just something that I wanted to be really, really just sort of uplifting and um, and uh, and joyful, you know. And it was just such a relief to write a song like that after spending so much time trying to be the next Leonard Cohen. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I love that. I love that. And and you know, um, some of your your uh, your your fellow Irish, of course, you know, have have. To me, like the, the the perfect Christmas song, and that's you know Fairy Tale of New York, right? Oh, of um, course, yeah. I mean, there's nothing that can ever touch that song. Oh, my, it's so beautiful, man. Like I, I literally I start listening about two weeks before Christmas and and don't end until like you know New Year's, and I probably listen to it ten or fifteen times a day. And I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. No, no, I'm exactly the same. Uh, last Christmas, uh, just just past that, I was working in this little kiosk where I was um, selling coffees um, outside of a little hut. And uh, they, they, the the people I was working for, they gave me this little, um, this little Bluetooth player, and they told me to play some Christmas music, and it was just the Pogues all day, right. every day. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. Because there's no, there's no Christmas song that's, um, that's ever um, really captured that, um, that side of Christmas before. Right. Uh, you know, there's, there's always, um, you know, there's Mariah Carey um, as the polar opposite. And, uh, right. and that's the, the other song. So people are either going to play Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You, or they're going to play the Pogues. And the Pogues just seem to have hit on this note that, um, that that people just want, really seem to want to articulate, but can't, you know, it's just this, um, it's just this uh, glorious sort of celebration of the, um, of the, the heartbreak of, of, of Christmas for a lot of people. Right, right. Uh, you know, not to mention, uh, you know, Shane being unabashedly alcoholic, right? And that that, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. definitely plays into that. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, um, you know, he really did. He really did live it. I don't know if you watched the uh, the recent documentary produced by Johnny Depp um, about no. Shane McGowan, but it's it's an incredible watch. And um, and yeah, I mean, that guy. You know, he and you know, people talk about uh, Keith Richards, and people talk about Slash, and people, but you know, Shane McGowan is just. It's a miracle that it is a miracle that he's still able to to well, well. I don't know if he can form a coherent sentence these days, but it's no. a miracle that he's still able to even try. No, I remember a, a few years back, uh, maybe it was four or five, six years ago, when uh, yeah. I believe it was Shane O'Connor actually paid for him to get his teeth fixed, and yeah, yeah, yeah. partially fixed, and within yeah, like two years, didn't they? Yeah. So what happened is, is like a couple of years later, I see another picture and they're, they're basically right back to the, where, the, where they were before. Right? <laughs> so it's like, yeah. you know, he was like, yeah, that was great. You know, he smiled for a little while and then he was like, well, no, they're, they're right back to where they were, you know? And I'm just wondering yeah. like, what does one do to their teeth to make them that way? But that, that's a whole different subject. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Because as, as far as I know, he's he's primarily alcohol. I don't think he he does a whole lot of of other drugs. He, uh, he used to do um in the in the night. I know definitely in the eighties and maybe the nineties, he definitely did experiment with uh, acid and heroin. Um, mm -hmm. But obviously, uh, alcohol is the one thing that stuck over the, um, the 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 last forty or fifty years. I think he's in the documentary he says he started drinking when he was about seven years old because it was given to him by his parents. And um, wow, he just kept going, but he, he um, yeah, no, he definitely did his fair share of other drugs as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all, but um, yeah, he only talks, he only talks about the alcohol, how's that? Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's just that the ease in which he talks about it, too, you know, like 
Yeah, well, you know, I had, uh, you know, I'm going to use the wrong terminology, but um, over here we would call them a, a handle, right, which is a 1.75 yeah. liter. It's like, you know, I had like three of those today, and I was like, oh, my, I can't, like, I, I like to drink, and I cannot imagine, you know, I can't imagine even going through one in, you know, like a 48-hour period, like, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Shane McGowan is one person who um, I always turn to when I need a little bit of uh, reassurance about my own relationship with alcohol. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if I think I'm going too far, then I'll I'll look up a Shane McGowan interview, and um, yeah. and then it'll just okay. No, I'm I, I'm good. You know yeah, I'm exactly, good. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It it you know at least people can mostly understand what I'm saying. You know, even when I'm I'm super hammered, yeah. but. With him, not so much, not so much. Yet he was always able to sing, right? I mean, even even when he was so drunk, he couldn't yeah. even like stand up. And I actually saw a show in Seattle. I forget when it was, but um, he had to be propped up into his like literally. There was somebody standing behind him, yeah. holding him up yeah. in his chair. Do you know um, what what year what year was that? God, I don't remember at all. It would have been the early nineties, I I think. Early nineties. Um, okay, I you know he's. He has done gigs uh, since then. He's done gigs, um, you know, in the early 2000s where he was still able to coherently sing. Um, and then he had an accident that rendered him um, unable to walk. Uh, so he's been in a wheelchair, I think, for the last maybe 10 years. And um, since then, it, it really did go downhill to the point where he couldn't actually remember the words. I think maybe after 2000. Mm. I could be wrong here, but I think it's around 2006, 2007. After that, it really goes downhill to the point where he's forgetting the words, but people are happy to still show up and and, right. and, you know, and support him. Yeah, and that that's a rare thing, you know. So I mean, you know, more power to yeah. him. Um, and that that's actually a great little segue into to what I think my personal <clears throat> favorite of of yours, which is Bourbon and the Truth, right? I just there's something about that song that I like. It's it, it's sort of the the the, the galloping um like what i would call like the the early country music in, in you know in the united states there, there's a little bit of that going on um yeah it's like a little bit of a, a, a train um a sort of a train yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's described as like a train on the tracks just sort of keeps going and going and going really uh really relentless production yeah no it, it's beautiful and and you know you you got a couple of, of great zinger lines in there right um you somehow managed to, to bring in, you know, gun control debates and, you know, that sort of stuff, you know, into the song about, you know, just wanting to basically go home and, you know, drink and hope everything is okay the next morning. Right. I mean, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, those sort of lines, um, the thing about the gun control debate and the Trump um, administration and, uh, and even what was going on in our government at the time, all that stuff is really difficult uh, subject matter to penetrate unless you can be a little bit subtle with it or a little bit, um, every time I mention something like that, you'll notice it's a throwaway line. It's almost like it's a, a joke. Um, it's a throwaway line because it's very difficult subject matter to penetrate. If, if you try to do it too earnestly, you'll come off looking really cheesy and cliched and preachy. And uh, and I just I don't like that kind of songwriting. So right. if I've got something to say, I'll say it in the most sarcastic, uh, throwaway possible way. You know. Um. So it's uh. You know what what's the line? Uh, um. Oh, I'm trying to think what it is now. It's uh. If uh. If there's a God in heaven, could he please decide my fate? 
um, and decide which way I'm leaning on the gun control debate. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's it. That um, <clears throat> it's just something I'm not going to go any further into it because, um, and then it, it sort of, it, it sort of goes on to say the left are all deluded and the right are obsolete um, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And it's a bit, you know, I didn't want to take any sides on that type of thing. Um, I don't want to take sides because once you take once you take a side, then it's um, it's not, it's just you know when when Eminem first came out, mm-hmm. you know when Eminem came out, the the thing that made Eminem so great was the fact that he he was just so um, above all the he, he he let everybody fight it out amongst themselves and he just stood above it all and just completely slandered everyone right. <laughs> so i sort of thought i sort of thought like you know i don't want to take a side on any of this stuff i would rather just step back let people fight it out amongst themselves and just be a like a journalist like an unbiased sure. journalist and let people um you know work it out for themselves because i've sort of gotten to the point in my life where i've realized that um you know you can have a point of view and that's great but um another person's point of view from the from the other side can be just as valid and it's all based on how you've been raised and um and what experiences you've had in your life has always just leads you to that point of view um so i try not to um i try not to get into a situation where i'm defending a point of view that might not be correct right you know yeah no absolutely um i don't know i don't know where you grew up um, I grew up in a very, very, very small town um, that was extraordinarily conservative. Um, it's changed dramatically since I was a kid, but, you know, it was super, 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 you know, um, what we would call redneck, you know, here. Um, where, where, what state did you grow up in? Northern Idaho. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I'm pretty, that was sort of pretty redneck, as you would put it? Yeah, I mean, it was a mining town, so it was, you know, rough, you know, um, It'd be like, uh, uh, you know, places in England where, where, you know, there are coal miners, right? It was the same sort of, of you know, grouping of people. Um, yeah. And what what I kind of learned through, through that is that I can't change anybody's opinion, right? I mean, it, it's yeah, like exactly. sometimes it's like screaming at a wall and there's just there's no point. Um, and I've taken a lot of gruff from, from people because... I don't stand up and, you know, take, take a big stand. Like, no, you can't say that. Yeah. Because it's just not, I, I don't see it as being productive. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. So, I mean, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, I know exactly what you mean. It's just, um, it's just one of those things where you're never, ever going to, you're never going to persuade somebody on the right to agree with you. And they're not going to persuade somebody on the left to agree with you. It's just going to be a, it's just going to be such a waste of energy that I'm trying to think of another way around the situation, you know, where, where there can be an amicable discussion about all the points, um, without, um, without these preconceived notions about the other side. Right. You know, absolutely. You know, so I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into uh, uh, some of the lyrics on, on Bourbon and the Truth because my personal favorite line is just when I re- just when I made a song that mattered, the industry turned into glass and shattered. Now, yeah. I assume that was done just after COVID or just as, as that was hitting? Is that? No, no, it, it, good guess, but no, it's actually, um, 
that's actually just talking about the music industry in general. You know, <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. Valid. <laughs> time over the time that I've been involved in it, um, because the music industry now is just so different than it was when I was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously, I knew nothing about it when I was a kid, but now, in hindsight, what I know um, mm-hmm. about how it's changed in the last thirty years, um, you know, it's that it's that sort of thing where serious serious songwriters it's getting harder and harder for serious songwriters and really any songwriter to get noticed um mm-hmm. because of the way things are now with spotify um and uh, it just takes people if if you want to find the good stuff it takes you such a long time to wade through all the crap they actually right. get to something they actually get to something i mean i I can't remember when it was the last time. I can't remember the last time that I heard a song on the radio um, or something that had been, you know, really well exposed that was uh, presented on a radio station or or whatever that made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Um, It just didn't seem to happen anymore. It seems to be this sort of, um, you know, this sort of swamp of, of mediocrity and stuff that doesn't really... It just doesn't really kick you in the balls the way this songs did um and, and that again that's going back to perspectives because mm-hmm. that's just my perspective I, I could be completely wrong about that but for me you know it doesn't um nothing really hits um nothing really hits the mark and nothing really moves the dial anymore and um the line about uh right when i wrote a song that mattered the industry turned into glass and shattered it just it's just sort of a reference to um to the industry not being able to uh, to recognize and that it's sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek line saying that right. i'm somebody worth because i'm not you know in real life i'm not saying i'm anybody that's worth recognizing but it's sort of a bit of a it's sort of a joke you know where like um oh i've written this amazing song and nobody's going to hear it because the music industry and in such is in right. such dismay um it's sort of inspired by uh, uh there's a leonard cohen line in one of his songs um where he's talking about all this serious subject matter about death and about genocide and and then he he says something like you know there's all this killing and there's all this suffering and there's all my bad reviews you know right (laughs) you know so there's like there's all this killing and there's this genocide um and there's all this um you know uh there's all there's all this evil in the world and there's all my bad reviews and he lumps that in with the same in the same sentence and it's just it was that type of um, sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek joke, you know, because the rest of Bourbon and the Truth is really all about um, sort of depression and and, um, and people dealing with uh, with the circumstances of of, um, of the world right. and and politics and everything. And then it was just funny to me to throw in a line at the very end of the song saying, um, you know, that um, right when I wrote a song that mattered, the industry turned into glass and shattered, as if that's... Um, as if that's as bad an event as um, all the uh, all the destruction that preceded it. You know? Right. <laughs> no, so I it, love it, that. It, it, so it's just a bit of a joke, really. Yeah. No, I, I think that it 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 worked extraordinarily well. Um, I again, it's 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 probably my favorite song from from what you know from what you've done. Oh, thank you. It's it, um, to be honest, it seems to be a lot of people's favorite songs. Of the one I've written. Um, so I am I'm I'm pretty happy with it. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm glad. I'm glad a lot of people like it and people got something from it. I uh, there's a, a a particular artist that I have coming on in the next 
well, hopefully a couple of weeks, knock on wood. It's been a long time getting him on board, but um, <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, I, I'm not going to mention exactly who they are, but they're a, um, um, an American band. Yeah. They were kind of based out of Seattle for, for, you know, a couple of decades. Um, but they, they venture into country stuff. And I was like, I would love to hear what they would do with bourbon and the truth. Yeah. Right? Because well, they, yeah, they, they do, you know, country songs, but they also do like, you know, punky country and, and they used to be yeah. like a, a punk band. Um, and I think that would be really interesting. So, um, We'll talk about this off offline, but I I really 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 want to get this this guy coming on to actually take a listen to that because yeah. lyrically it's right in their wheelhouse, right? And and the okay. the uh, okay. yeah the music is definitely in their wheelhouse too. So anyway, that, that's just you know neither here nor there. Um, well, one one thing that I've always been interested in is writing songs for other artists. Hundred mm -hmm. you know, percent. I'm not precious about. Um, being you know if one of my songs was successful with another artist um you know that would um that would mean more to me than um than me you know i don't care if i have a success with one of my songs mm -hmm. or somebody else does you know i'm I'm more interested in being a, a songwriter um mm -hmm. you know i definitely you know i'm sort of at a stage now i'm 35 years old i know enough about um what from what i've heard and from what i've seen i know enough to know that um you know, I don't really give a damn about the spotlight. I would rather mm -hmm. um, be successful writing a song for another artist um, and have it done that way than, uh, than you know, than me having success with the same song. I don't really care either way. Right. Well, so, uh, um, there's... So by all means, yes, it, you know, you can suggest that song to anybody you want. <laughs> I, I think, you know, it's definitely a way to make more money, <clears throat> right? So people who are, you know, successful, you know, in, in songwriting, um, I personally would way rather have, you know, a cut of publishing than a cut of album royalties, like in any yeah. day of the year, of course, <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. um, and the, the truly successful people, you know, um, there's only a handful are the ones that write songs for other people and for themselves. Right. So they end up, you know, with, with, you know, double publishing, they end up with, you know, albums, like whatever, um, I, I think yeah. most of those people are, are gone now. I mean, you know, there are a couple that are still alive, but, you know, they're, they're pushing, you know, 70, 75. Um, yeah. But, you know, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of like uh, um, when I write software, right? When I write software, it, yeah. it's like a baby to me, right? And I want to keep a hold of that baby as long as I possibly can. But yeah. I'd, I'd rather somebody else take it and do something with it than it just, you know, like dying. So... Yeah, exactly, man. Exactly. And the thing is with writing a song, once you've written it, um, yeah, you can definitely be too close to it where you don't want anybody interfering with it. Um, right. But that um, it, it can be also a blessing just to give it to somebody else and see what they can do with it, because they might have a lot more talent than you in regards mm -hmm. to performing the song. You know, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, it's no, um, you know, everybody knows that one of my all-time heroes is Bob Dylan. I mean, what songwriter is influenced by Bob Dylan? But, mm -hmm. um, you know, the songs that he wrote in the 60s, like Mr. Tambourine Man and um, and all these other songs that were recorded by other artists, the other artists just um, were able to bring something out in the melody that, um, that people who love Bob Dylan don't really care about, but the rest of the world is, just finds a little bit more accessible. 
right you so know, and i think i think that if somebody takes on one of your songs and just sings it a little better or does something a little bit different with the melody you know it, right. it's just i personally i would just be completely flattered so it it's so funny you mentioned bob dylan because i have this this You've probably seen me post it on Facebook a few times. My my rage about Bob Dylan, like I just can't stand him. Oh no, well, I, no I do well, follow you on Facebook, but I haven't seen the uh, what, what's the rage. Well, the rage is I I can't stand his voice. Like I just I I can't stand it. <laughs> but he's well, an incredible. He's an incredible songwriter, right? So yeah. you know, like I like. I think what I've said about Bob Dylan is like he's the the worst performer in the world who writes the best songs that other people cover in an awesome way. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. An example is, um, you know, one of my favorite examples is, uh, you know, ministry did a cover of lay lady lay. Right. Okay, yeah. So the original of lay lady lay literally makes me want to, you know, poke my eyes out with a fork. Like, it's just like, it's so bad. Um, yeah. I, I guess I would call it boring. It just, it bores the hell out of me. Um, yeah. 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 But, you know, ministry, of course, did, you know, their own little take on it. And it's incredible. It's like, wow, this is great. You know, or, or, uh, you know, Mike Ness from Social Distortion, when he does, um, um, oh, my God, I can't believe I just forgot the name of the song. Don't think twice. Um, oh, yeah. Another song that the original makes me want to, like, you know, put a gun to my head. But, you know, the, when yeah. done by somebody else, it's like, oh, okay, now I see where that's coming from. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, I, I totally understand that. I mean, I'm, I'm a massive Dylan fan, so you know I, I'm I've got no problem with his voice or his delivery. But at the same time, it's very easy to see why a lot of people do. You know, it's it's very very easy for me to see why a lot of people have exactly the same complaints that you have. Because yeah. um, either it's just one of those things where you either love it or you don't, and um, yeah. and that's that's one of the great things about Dylan. He's just so divisive. But one thing that everybody can agree on is that he's just writing or wrote some of the best songs that we'll ever hear in our lifetime. Yeah, I, I I'm totally down with that, and I I completely respect people who who adore Bob Dylan. I I really do. Um, it's just <clears throat> that, not that's for me. But yeah, no, it, yeah, totally. And um, no, I, that's the thing. It's, I think it's just really easy to see why it's not for everybody. I think that's why because I. Just another one of those things where um, it's sort of like what we were talking about earlier with the politics. It's like, you know, want to take sides. I absolutely love Bob Dylan. I can listen to his albums all day long. But at the same time, I have enough, you, you know, you can you have enough of an ear to see why a lot of people would find it really repellent. You know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it's like Tom Waits. And, and I had um, this is oh. kind of a funny story. He's a. What do you want to say about Tom Waits, Glenn? Because I love oh, Tom Waits. No, no, no. Hold on, hold on. I didn't say anything <laughs> bad about him, but I, uh, I had a f actually an old friend of mine from high school, somebody that I kind of, sort of stayed in touch with, whatever. And and he came on the show, and um, mm. right before he came on, you know, we were talking a little bit, and it turned out he was Tom Waits' guitarist for for a tour that he had done. Jesus. And I didn't know that. And so we were talking about that whole thing. And, and the only thing I was going to say about Tom Waits is that he's got this weird thing where his voice is, I mean, it's, it's an acquired taste. There's no, doubt, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, totally acquired taste. Um, but the one thing that, that Omar Torres, the guy who was on, on with me, um, said is, you know, he uses his voice like an instrument. Like he yeah. is keenly aware of the sound of his voice and the uniqueness. And he actually works on that to, to make it as unique as humanly possible. 
yeah. right? To like match the, and so you know, I have a great respect for him, and I I've seen him live a couple of times. Um, never had a bad time, never had a bad time listening to him. But he's one of those artists I've never owned a single Tom Waits record. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I totally, I totally get that. Um, with Tom Waits, I. I mean, he, he's another one of my heroes in terms of lyrical, um, you know, lyrical genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, um, whenever I go back home to Northern Ireland, I always let my parents hear, you know, the songs that I'm listening to because they've got a great taste of music. And um, and I'll, that, that's something that my parents and I really bond over, you know, is, is, is mm-hmm. our different the songs that we like. Um, because they introduced me to Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan, and um, and I've sort of gotten to the stage where I've um, really gotten into both of those um, mm-hmm. artists. And Tom Waits is sort of like a natural progression from that um, when it comes to lyrics. And when I when I go back to Northern Ireland, I play my mom and dad Tom Waits records, but I don't play. Um, I don't just play them and let them listen. I play them, but I bring the lyrics up on the um, on the inter- you know on the uh, the iPad or whatever. Mm-hmm lyrics up so that they can so that my mom and dad can follow the lyrics while they're listening to the song and that's unfortunately that's something you have to do with tom waits because i think a lot of people would be turned off by the voice initially um because you can't there's a lot a lot of tom waits best songs you cannot make out a word he's saying but when you hold up the lyrics and somebody's able to actually follow what he's saying it just transforms it into this like you know holy god this is really brilliant writing mm-hmm. you know and that's something that's really special about tom Waits is um is the fact that, you know even if you hate his voice uh, which is you know it's it's sometimes especially on his albums post 1985 you know his, his voice is sometimes unlistenable you know it's just so right. gravelly and the words are just inaudible um but if you if you let people read the lyrics while they're listening to the song i think it really does um, transform the experience yeah absolutely there's there's a hysterical um and, and when i find it all i'll share it with you but um yeah a hysterical interview with tom waits on on some stupid american talk show in like the late 70s and he sits down you know and he's got he's got a glass of bourbon next to him and he's got a cigarette you know and he's like smoking the whole time and you know back when you could do that on tv and of course yeah so he's he's doing that whole thing and um the the host it was sort of one of those like smart ass sort of of you know tv shows you know probably you know pretty uniquely american you know in in, in how dickish yeah. it was but um the host looked at him and said so you're a famous singer right and everyone starts laughing because you know his voice you know to just even talking is like almost illegible right and this is back yeah. when he was young yeah. young and you know he just went with it he thought that was great you know it's like well yeah. you know my voice gets better if you if I have some more bourbon and he like reaches over and grabs you know the, the you know the glass from the his you know from the or from the host um you know so he always kind of had that that sort of uh, uh yeah I, I yeah. know I sound funny but that's that's me like that that's the shit <laughs> that this is you know what Tom Waits is yeah. all about yeah you know which I, I found really really interesting um but we've talked about a bunch of other people we haven't talked about you at all um well I mean we've talked a little bit about you but um, how are you, are you able to play anywhere live or have you been able to play anywhere live in like the last year or is it just the Facebook things that you're doing? I think just the Facebook, I think the last live gig I did was, uh, 
it was probably last summer um, around July there was somebody who was able to have a socially distant wedding party uh, mm-hmm. in a, an open park in uh, in the middle of England and they asked me if I could come and play a few songs and I did and that's literally the last time I played live before that the last time I played live was February of 2020 Wow! so um, yeah yeah it's a shame because it was um, obviously you know I'm a a songwriter and I'm trying to um, I'm trying to make uh, some sort of career out of writing songs and um, and being a, a, a singer songwriter but to be honest you know I'm 35 years old now and um, and I have to think about seriously making a living out of music so right. otherwise you know because otherwise it's just going to be something that I don't enjoy um, and the best way for me to make a living out of music is to play private parties and weddings and bars and um and that was that was something that uh that was starting to go pretty well for me at the start of um 2020 because i spent a lot of 2019 um you know really going at it just i'm living i just moved in with my girlfriend in 2019 in kent and uh, i spent a lot of time traveling around um traveling around the county just speaking to a lot of different landlords and landladies of different Mm -hmm. bars and Mm -hmm. pubs and just trying to get my foot in the door and it was getting to the stage where um you know it was it it was playing in bars and also getting my name around the wedding circuit Mm -hmm. you know it that was really starting to happen and um you know there's a lot of money to be made for somebody who can play a lot of songs you know there's yeah. a lot of money to get in the wedding and private party industry and um that was something that was looking really hopeful for me um at the start of last year and then all, all of a sudden this this thing hit and um and that all went away but um to be honest i'm not i'm really lucky um i'm not you know because i'm in a situation where I've got there's a there's a nearby there's a nearby farm shop that I've been able to get some work on during mm-hmm. the year. I keep to keep some income right. coming in, and um, and that that really helped me out last year, and it's going to help me out again this year. That's good. And the way I see it, a lot of people, a lot of people think that this um, this century, it's going to be like a repeat of last century where we're going to have another um, round of the roaring 20s, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> because once um, once the wedding industry and the party industry, people are just busting to get out of the house and give each other a hug and socialize right. and avoid uh, drinking together. And I think once that happens, then, you know, I'm going to be, um, as long as I can keep the determination up and go around and promote myself, you know, uh, to, to all these different venues and bars, I think it's going to mm-hmm. come back in a way um, that's, uh, that's, you know, it's going to be a blessing in disguise in some ways, you know. I, I think I it think probably will be. We're going to be crying out for that type of, um, just, just, just to be somewhere where there's live music playing and people can put right. their arm around each other. Uh, I mean, you know, I that's the only thing I would say with that, Pete, is that I think, you know, I, that's very valid. And, and a very good friend of mine who was actually on um, a week ago um, has basically made his living doing that for the last, you know, 40 years, right? Yeah. Um, but I think you might be selling yourself a little bit short too, right? I mean, like that that's that's a, a great goal. You know, it's like, you know, just make your money, you know, doing weddings and private parties and whatnot. Um, yeah. But I, I think you have 
a little bit more to offer than that. Um, actually, quite a bit more than that. So, you know, that, that's all I'm going to say. This is not, you know, I'm not Dr. Phil. No, no, I appreciate that. But the thing, the thing with, um, with the wedding and private party in the street, that's sort of my bread and butter. Um, that's what I want just to make a solid living from so that I'm getting a steady income every month. Sure. But the thing with doing that type of thing, that's, I'm not going to settle. I'm not going to settle for that by any means. The reason I want to do that is because it gives me a chance to do what I love doing in some respect, but it also affords me the time to work on my, um, my own music and to right. put it out there. You know, I'm not going to settle for that. I'm not just going to say, well, I'm a wedding singer for the rest of my life. You know, that's not what I want to do. But there, I just know that there's a lot of money to be made there. And if that can keep me sustained uh, and can give me the money to go into the studio and record my own song and put it out there, then, you know, it's um, it's just it's the perfect um, it's the perfect balance of everything. You know, yeah, th that's extraordinarily pragmatic. Right. Um, so, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm totally down with that. Um, and plus, you know, if you've seen the movie The Wedding Singer, um, you know, Adam Sandler. <laughs> He ended up with Drew Barrymore. So, you know, hey, not so bad, right? Exactly. exactly. You, can't <laughs> you, do any you could do a lot worse than that. Um, <laughs> plus, Billy Idol made a cameo in that movie, which I think is just hysterical. Oh, that was, that was awesome. <laughs> oh, what was it he said? Um, and since we let uh, our first-class passengers do pretty much whatever they want. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, but totally. He's coming down, when Billy Idol's coming down with the trolley tray, and uh, and Drew Barrymore's husband to be is just like, don't push me, Billy. I'm warning you. <laughs> like so he knows him. Yeah. The the, the thing I, I don't like Adam Adam Sandler very much, but I do love that movie. Um. And the thing that pissed me off more than anything is that her fiance's yeah. name was Glenn, and it was like this guy's a total fucking dick. Like, <laughs> you know. And Glenn is not a common name, at least at least in the states, right? So I'm like, are you serious? Really? You had to name him? Okay. You know. Literally any other name would have been fine. To be honest, I, I don't like Adam Sandler much either, but there was a couple of, I think he started off really well. The Wedding Singer and uh, Happy Gilmore, you know, he had a couple mm -hmm. of great movies um, before he went off the rails and just started doing pretty much any movie that was offered to him. Right, right. Well, any movie where he got to be an idiot, right? Like That was the whole thing. Like, hey, I'm an idiot. Look at me. I'm an idiot. Right? Yeah. Um, Wow, we, yeah, it's we, a shit because he was a pretty funny guy. Yeah, I mean, this is this is fun. So we've covered, uh, you know, Bob Dylan and and Shane <clears throat> Gowan and and uh, Tom Waits and Adam Sandler all in you know, the last <laughs> couple of minutes here. It's always fun. Um, I want to I want to talk about how we met, and then I want to I want to kind of finish off with with like you know what you're doing now, and and um, you know like um maybe a, a slightly deeper introduction to like, you know, the, the music of Pete Gardner, you know, like, you know, what, what you're all about and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. So I don't remember what uh, year it was. 2017. Maybe I was going to say, should we take a quick break? Yep. Let's do that. Hey Pete. So we're, we're, we're back from a uh, much needed, you know, pee and smoke break. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Always good, man. Always good. People have to do that stuff. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we met because that was an incredibly fun night for me. Um, and yeah. it was, it was weird because I was already feeling zero pain when I, when I met you and your sister, um, I was <laughs> well, well into my cups. Um, and I was about to go home actually. So for, for people listening, this is at, at the rainbow in, in Hollywood. And, um, I was working 
for a company right across the street from the rainbow at the time. So um, what that meant is I didn't spend any time in the office at all. I was always at the rainbow, right? Like I literally worked from the rainbow, you know, for, you know, a week out of the month or whatever. Um, and so I was sitting there and that was actually the same day right before I met you and your sister that I met Don Dawkin for the first time. So it was just a really weird day for me all the way around, right? And I think I, I was there yeah. from like noon until like midnight. You know, it was one of those sorts of days. Um, yeah. And I think it, I mean, I think it was your, your sister who turned around and said, hey, you know, because she's very outgoing. She's kind of like, <clears throat> hey, how are you? What's your name? And I was like, okay, this is weird. I, no, I don't know. I remember it, I, you know, I remember it slightly differently. There was, um, I, I was just going to ask you, first of all, that if you got home safe to Seattle, because when I, as I recall, when I first met you, you told me that you were, um, you'd missed your flight back home. <laughs> no, I think were, I did. You, so, you'd missed, you'd already missed your flight. So you decided to spend the rest of your evening at the Rainbow Bar and Grill. Now, yes. My sister, my sister and me, my sister and I, we were having this, um, uh, no, what was no doubt uh, a very insightful um, and revolutionary uh, conversation about 80s rock music. Right. And uh, the subject of Skid Row came up uh, and we were talking about Skid Row um, and the pros and cons of that band. And then out of nowhere, I remember you piping up from the other side of the bar and saying, hey, Skid Row were never going to make it because uh, they weren't from Los Angeles, uh, and I'm not trying to be smart. And I'm not trying to be a smartass, but that's just why they didn't fit in with everybody else because they weren't from Los Angeles. And then from that moment on, we just started clicking and we just started <laughs> right. talking. And I think the rest of the evening was just a really, uh, a really fun conversation about uh, '80s and '90s rock music in Los Angeles and Seattle. It was so much fun, and you know the thing, of <laughs> yeah. course, of about the rainbow is you never know who's around, right? Like, yeah. like I said, you know, I, I met Don Doc in the day, you know, earlier that day, um, just randomly, I was petting his dog and I was like, Oh wait, you're Don Doc. that's weird. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but the thing I remember the most, and again, I was well into my cups, uh, you know, like I, yeah. I had missed my flight kind of on purpose. I was going through my second divorce at the time. So I didn't really want to go yeah. home. Um, yeah. I probably would have stayed in LA for another, you know, month if I, if I could have, but, um, <laughs> so, you know, we're having this conversation and there was that guy sitting like, you know, two seats down from, from you guys. Right. So I, I yeah. was in the, I was in the, the magical Lemmy seat, right? Like right by the, you know, oh, the poker yeah, machine. Yeah, yeah. I, ha I actually had my picture taken in that seat, like just the day before. Yeah. So yeah. you were in the, you were in the Lemmy seat um definitely I, I do remember that because we were on the um we were on the adjacent side of the lemmy seat right and you're right. sitting there with you with your sunglasses on and um <laughs> yeah i remember um and yeah i think there's a picture of you and i right in front of the, the lemmy statue from that night as well but, <laughs> yeah. um again a lot of this is a blur but the one thing i do remember that was a lot of fun was there was a guy sitting like two seats down from you and your sister um who kept you could tell like he wanted to jump into the conversation so much, you know, because we were talking about, you know, like Sunset Strip in the, in the you know, the mid 80s and whatnot. And he finally jumped in and he said something along the lines of, well, I would know my band. I was in this band. I forget what it was. It was 
a band like Dangerous Toys, but it wasn't even that high of a level. <laughs> you know, it was like it was somebody like probably like a Wet Cherry or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was such a stupid, stupid band name, and and I vaguely yeah. remember hearing about them, but pretty sure I'd never heard anything from them. And he kept telling these stories, and I'd I'd have to stop him every few minutes and be like, "No, dude, that's not what happened." right and he's like but i was there and i was like well obviously you weren't there because that's not what happened (laughs) and he finally got so angry he just kind of looked at me he's like well then why don't you tell the fucking story and i was like okay (laughs) i'll tell the story (laughs) i don't even know what story you're trying to tell but you know fuck it i'll do it yeah he got so angry oh it was so funny it was so funny but then that that led to us having one of the, the best conversations ever because I remember that was the first time. I mean, I'm really interested in. Um, I, I wasn't old enough to um, to appreciate the whole Seattle scene when it first emerged, uh, but um, but I was always so interested in it. In hindsight, and when I met you, that was the first time I'd met somebody from Seattle who had gone through it, mm-hmm. um, who I could have a proper conversation with about what it was actually like to be there at the time when it's whole, when this whole thing took off. Right. Um, you know because. I had this sort of weird relationship with rock music where, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people who loved all the 80s rock bands and all the hair metal bands, then, um, you know, their their dream was killed by this Seattle music scene. Right. And and I, and I have this really uh, beautiful, unique advantage, uh, sorry, vantage point where I can appreciate both sides of it um, mm-hmm. without any judgment because I love, I grew up listening to so many 80s hair metal bands and I love them all and um, you know I have this thing in my life where I uh, I seem to catch on to things 10 years too late you know I was born in 1986 which was the golden age of the power ballad um, you know um, but I have my my love of rock music comes from probably I had this cousin who was 10 years older than me who introduced me to Guns N' Roses. Um, and then later on, he introduced me to Aerosmith. And I was in my in my teenage years, I was um, listening to Guns N' Roses and Aerosmith while everybody else in my at my uh, at my school was listening to stuff like, you know, Blink-182 and new metal bands like Limp Bizkit and all that sort of stuff. And I just couldn't relate to it. You know, I, I, I'd never, ever related to anything that was going on around me at the time. I always had to go back at least 10 years to find a band that I liked. Uh, and I thank God for my cousin because he introduced me to Guns N' Roses and Aerosmith like when I was like six or seven years old. And that was what really sparked my apartment. Like my dad had another part to play in my um, in my musical upbringing. He let me hear Meatloaf and all this stuff when I was a kid and Queen. Right. You know, and I always, I always just felt like I didn't belong in the time that I was born, mm-hmm. you know, so I was always growing up thinking that all the music that was worth listening to was like 10 years behind me or 20 years behind me, um, you know, so when everybody else was listening to Blink-182 and Limp Bizkit, I was just constantly listening to like Aerosmith and Def Leppard and Guns N' Roses. And then when I got to the early 2000s and like 2005, then I started discovering all this great music that came out of Seattle, mm-hmm. um, you know, Pearl Jam and everything else and Soundgarden. And, um, you know, it was just, uh, it just seems like everything that happens to me, it's like, it's always 10 years too late, which is brilliant. You know, I don't want to relate to everything that's going on around me at the time. I'd rather just like look back. But what I'm saying is, 
I'm able to look back at the hair metal genre and the grunge genre and appreciate both at the same time. Sure. Yeah, no, definitely. Myself included. Like I, <laughs> I unabashedly love the hair metal stuff. Like I, I, I love it. Um, yeah. and I, I obviously, because simply of, of, I think by virtue of, of being here in Seattle, like, you know, as that stuff was happening, um, I, I love that stuff, but probably in a different way than somebody like yourself does. Right. So yeah. to me, it's, it's nostalgia, right? Um, yeah. not to say that, that a lot of those bands weren't phenomenal and I've had several of them, you know, on, you know, to talk about this stuff. Um, yeah. it's not that it, it just, there, there's a level of nostalgia that, that is, um, it definitely enhances the, you know, the, the appreciation of the music. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> And, you know, a little while ago, you mentioned like listening to the radio and whatnot. And, and when the few times I've listened to the radio in say the last 20 years, um, very, very rarely, all I hear are songs from 20 or 30 years ago, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Th there is very little new stuff that, that comes out. And when it does, it doesn't fit, you know? So here's just a brief example. There's, there's a, a radio station or it used to be a radio station in Seattle um, called yeah. The End. Um, yeah. KNDD and they I had Marco Collins who was I mean Marco's a phenomenal guy I highly recommend you go and, and listen to that chat I had with him but yeah, he's, yeah. he's credited with breaking you know so many different bands because he would basically he he did kind of like an almost pirate radio thing you know from mm -hmm. from this commercial radio station um I totally forgot where I was going to go with that something something somewhere really good but you know it just it just slipped oh, no, right out right. of my head um <laughs> Don't worry, man. I, I, I think that um, music is very situational, right? I mean, it's very situational. And yeah. when, when somebody gives me, you know, grief or whatnot or, you know, for, for liking, like, Quiet Riot, which I unabashedly love. Um, yeah. It's because yeah. it just, it it it, 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 it scratches that, that itch that I have, right? Like, I mean, it just, it's nostalgia. Again, I love it. Yeah, yeah. I think if touched on a point that I was going to make. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned Brett Michaels earlier, and I, I completely understand that he's a bit of a joke. You know, I totally get where that is. But when I was six or seven years old, my cousin uh, let me hear a Poison record. And, um, and that, because, I think because I listened to them back when I was that young, Mm -hmm. It sort of like has this thing for me where I, I, it's like a real guilty pleasure, but Poison, you know, there's a few, there's a couple of albums in their back catalog where I just absolutely love, but just because I associate it with my childhood and with growing yeah. up and with learning to love music. And I, since then, obviously in hindsight, you've seen all the documentaries, you know, everybody ridicules Poison for being like, you know, the, um, you know, the poster boys for um, really, uh, sort of sissy hair metal that everybody takes the piss out of, right. you know, but, but I, you know, I can't help it. You know, it just brings back a lot of great memories for me. And I, I love listening to, to, to the old boys and records. Every rose has its thorn and all this stuff, you know, I just love it. And um, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean by nostalgia, but what I was saying to you was, uh, 
when we met in Los Angeles, you were the first person I met who had actually gone through the um, the whole Seattle early nineties um, surgeons, you know, in in rock music there. You know, you were the first person, and I tried to get a little bit of insight into what it was like to actually go through that um, while it was happening. And you quite rightly said to me, "Look, you don't. It doesn't. When you're going through it yourself, you don't notice it. Not at all." Because I because I'm obviously coming at the whole scene like you know 10, 20 years later, and I'm looking back at it with everybody else in the documentaries at the, and it's like oh this grunge thing happened and it killed hair metal, but when you're going through it at the time, it's probably absolutely nothing like that. It's probably just like you know, you see all these bands coming up, but you don't realize that you're part of something so special. Without a doubt, without a doubt, um, I, I would liken. Um, Seattle from the you know the the mid '80s to the very early '90s to be very similar to like Birmingham, right, or, or even yeah. Manchester, right, where <laughs> you you've got this thing that's happening, but again nobody knew it was happening, right, yeah. or even even like Minneapolis, like in in the you know the early '80s with like Husker Du and Soul Asylum, you know bands like that. You don't <clears throat> know that something is happening. All you know is like, hey, I can go out and watch you know great music, you know seven days a yeah. week. Right, which yeah. I did. I literally was, you know, at a music venue at least four or five times a week. Yeah. Um, and the bands didn't even matter. See, that was that's the real kicker. I didn't I had my favorites, of course, but I didn't care so much who was playing. I just yeah. knew that you know, certain venues would have, you know, great collections of, of you know, shows and I'd just go and, you know, figure it out. Um yeah, it's almost parallel. What you guys went through in Seattle is uh, almost parallel to what London went through with the punk rock scene. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it gets to the stage where, because the punk rock was born out of um, people being frustrated with the fact that people uh, bands like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, they were completely untouchable and you couldn't... Um, you couldn't go to see um, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin unless you had a, you know, a ticket. And... Um, they were just like untouchable rock gods. Right. But this whole thing in the late seventies, that's born into, into this sort of gritty, grimy sort of uh, underground scene. Everybody could go out and touch the bands that were playing. They could like, you know, uh, you know, they could get like just hot and sweaty with the bands that were actually playing. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just like the touch, they could reach out and touch them and they were part of it. And it was just all this big scene that just emerged. And I sort of feel like what happened in Seattle was exactly the same thing. It was like almost a response to the fact that people could not go out and touch Guns N' Roses or, or uh, you know, touch Def Leppard. They were just too high on this pedestal where you could never get anywhere near them. But then all these gritty Grammy bands start coming out again, like, you know, Screaming Trees and, you know, uh, you know, Soundgarden and, and all these bands. Like, they just start playing in all these clubs and people are just like... Fuck, this is this is what music is about again. So then it's almost like Seattle got its own version of punk rock. Oh, um, without a doubt. You know, yeah, it, it was just like their own version of, of punk rock that just came out and everybody loved it. And then of course, like everything people latch onto, the record companies unfortunately caught wind to it and destroyed right. it. Yeah. You know, but but I mean it was just such an unbelievable, even just for those two or three years. From like you know eighty nine to ninety four, it was just these these four or five years of just brilliant music and brilliant you know just this brilliant community of bands that came together, and then like anything else, you know once people once people catch on to it, then it's going to die because people exploit it. 
Yeah, no, that, that's really, really accurate. Um, and there's also that that sort of like hmm. ingrained thing that I think humans have, where if you really, really like something and, and you know you're you're kind of obsessed with it, and then suddenly <clears throat> millions of other people also like it, it's kind of like. You know, and you you have that that internal struggle. At least I do that internal struggle as to whether I still want to vocally talk about how much I love a band. You know, when they they have like ten million yeah. followers versus like a hundred. Um, and you know, it's totally self centered. You know, I mean, let's be perfectly honest, right? It, it's it's yeah. um, not wanting to share your experience with other people, right? Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, like when I was a kid, like. When I, I first got into Guns N' Roses when I was like seven or eight years old, you know, and Guns N' Roses were my life, uh, you know, they were, I was all consumed by them until I was 18. But when I first, uh, like my cousin, I didn't even hear Appetite for Destruction first. I think it was Use Your Illusions 2. Um, he let me hear a, a tape and it was just such a, like, there was just something magical about that band, you know, because the thing was back then it was music was such a myth, you know, you couldn't like I can, today I can Google or look up any interview with Guns N' Roses or look up anything I want to know about the band. Back then I could not look up anything, you know, it was just, right. I was just a kid and I'd heard this record and I was like, Oh my God, this band is just, it's just mine and nobody else knows about it. I had no idea how big Guns N' Roses were. I just thought I just thought it was this band that I that I discovered because my cousin had let me hear the album, and uh, I thought it was this band that I discovered that nobody else knew about, and um, and I was just, and I was just so cool because I knew um, I knew all about this band, and then they were they were my heroes, you know. And it's just um, it's just crazy because then later on you grow up and. Um, during my teenage years, I was telling you earlier about, you know, me listening. I'm listening to Guns N' Roses. Everybody else is listening to, like, Blink-182 or some 41 or whatever crap right. is on the radio at the time. But then as they grow up, we got, to, we got to about 17 years old or 18 years old, and everybody is, like, saying, oh, my God, Guns N' Roses, they're the shit. They're the, you know, everybody is jumping on the bandwagon again all right. of a sudden. And I'm like, well, yeah, 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 I've been listening to this stuff since I was like six or seven years old. You guys are just <laughs> yeah. on to and yeah, and that, that definitely happens. And you know, and I was really lucky. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, sorry, you just kind of cut out a little bit there, but I think you're back, so yeah, it's all yeah, good. No um. Yeah, people in Seattle, this was a little bit before my time, but, you know, people in Seattle, when they first saw, you know, Guns N' Roses, were like, holy shit, that's Duff, you know, and Duff had, you know, he had been a drummer, I mean, he had done, like, all sorts of stuff in, in Seattle, you know, from the time he was, like, you know, 15 or 16, yeah. right? Um, and I, I think he doesn't quite get enough credit, like, he, he was, yeah. um, from that era, definitely the first one to have, like, I mean, a super, super, super major label breakout. Right. Yeah. And he, I don't think he gets that credit because, you know, oh, he moved to LA and, you know, he had, you know, people who weren't from Seattle in the band. Um, yeah. But, you know, one of Guns N' Roses' first shows was actually in Seattle. Right. There, yeah. There's an entire, I don't know if you've read um, um, Duff's biography, which is yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Read it. Yeah. Um, but that whole story of, of them trying to get up to Seattle to play the show and how it was just like, um, yeah. 
you know, nothing worked like the whole way up, like nothing worked. And, you know, the show itself didn't, I forget, I think that show they actually had to cancel if I remember correctly, but anyway, it, it was sort of, yeah, I think that was the tour there was that the tour from hell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it took him like two weeks to get from LA to Seattle, you know, cause our van kept breaking down, you know, like one of those sorts of yeah. stories. And I, I kind of look at that as, is, uh, you know, it's sort of a, an apocryphal sort of story. Right. I mean, it makes sense, yeah. you know, um, he, he stepped outside of, well, actually, okay, let, let, let's, let me finish this thought, but he kind of stepped outside <laughs> of what he had done in Seattle and that, you know, it was almost like the universe was saying like, no, you're not, you can't come back yet. Right. Like you, you have to yeah, make, it, you know, you have to become an international superstar before you can even come back. And, you know, that was, that was pretty interesting to me. Right. Like everything yeah. just fell apart. I mean, I mean, what, what I sort of see it is in hindsight, that that's another thing, like, because I'm coming up, uh, I, as I said, I was born in 1986. So I was too young to see everything unfolding as it happened. But right. because I just love the music so much, I'm able to look at it in hindsight and sort of watch what was happening. And with Guns N' Roses, I always think that they um, played a major part in, um, because they were so much better than the, uh, the hair metal genre that they emerged from. Yeah. You know, they were just so, so it was just mu musically and lyrically, they were just um, on a different uh, playing field. So I always think that like Guns N' Roses bridged the gap from the classic rock hair metal stuff um, of the late 80s and to, to the uh, Seattle scene in the early 90s, because I, I think... Um, when Appetite for Destruction came out, it just had such balls, um, you know, and such uh, integrity that uh, you couldn't really go back anymore. You couldn't really go back and do albums like, you know, Poison's first album. It was just, no. it was just laughable. It was just laughable, really. And then after that, when bands like Pearl Jam started coming out, it was just right. Okay, the the, the playing field has definitely changed. Yeah, you know, and, uh, yeah. And um, and I think Guns N' Roses bit, uh, don't get credited enough, probably, for uh, for bridging that gap between the sort of hair metal genre and the grunge genre, because obviously Guns N' Roses aren't grunge, but they're certainly not hair metal either. Just no, too not good. at all. <laughs> no, not at all. And and you know that reminds me of of um, we don't have to talk about this very much, but um, reminds me of of a theory I have, which is you know that <clears throat> you know Motley Crue at least the first yeah. two albums um, yeah. was a, a legitimate successor to like the New York dolls. Right. I mean, it, it was, it's yeah, to me, yeah. it's an obvious transition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't understand because they listen to like the later Motley Crue stuff, which was, you know, radically different, but it was the same yeah. as guns and roses. Right. I mean, <laughs> the first guns and Rosa album is just, it's a hard rock album, man. That, that's it's just a rock album. That's all it is, man. Um, it, it's not metal. It's certainly not grunge. It's not. Yeah, you know, it, it's just hard rock. Um, and, and you can definitely it, hear the it, influences. It, yeah, it was almost like the second coming of the Rolling Stones. That's an, OK. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Yeah, I mean, it was just it was just pure because um, everything else before that, it was just it appetite for destruction had so much balls behind it that it just um, it just couldn't. Um, 
you know you can't lump it in with all those hair metal albums that they, they were so the hair metal albums that were preceded appetite for destruction were so perfectly produced and it was just it got to the stage where it was getting really laughable right you know there's no um there was no credibility to it anymore and then guns and roses just came in and laid down the gauntlet and just blew everything out of the water and then every and then all these other bands like warrant and uh, and rat are like oh shit shit okay what are we gonna do what are we gonna do now because that's just fucked everything up yep you know a absolutely absolutely and and you know it's funny people um in in retrospect tend to blame the quote grunge movement which i i can't stand a word more than i hate you know that particular word but i i know to... i don't even feel right calling it grunge because i know that all the bands involved in that movement don't even like that word i'm just calling it grunge for the sake of you know simplicity and understanding what of we're course, talking about of course so i i completely understand like pearl jam would laugh you just laugh you off the stage if you try to call them a grunge band you know what i mean i mean pearl jam so is, is so much more than that pearl jam is the logical extension to like 70s arena rock right i mean as far as i'm concerned <laughs> um yeah just you know a stripped down version of that um yeah god we could probably talk for a long time on this but we're not going to um yeah i i wanted i have two questions for you okay um one is one of my favorites which i'm sorry i'll wait until the end for that one um all right so the first one is what what does pete gardner see himself doing in the next five years like i mean we, we've kind of touched on it a little bit but what where would you like to see yourself in say like five years you know it's difficult because um <clears throat> when you're um when you're a kid and you first pick up a guitar and uh you start trying to write songs i think i, I i'm not sure if everybody has the same feeling but i had the when i started trying to write my first song I was about 14 or 15 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, I I can't really explain it, but um, I've been in a lot of bands and stuff, you know, since then. Mm -hmm. I knew, but there was something about it where I knew for a fact that no matter what happened, like this, when I was 16 or 17 years old, I knew that I was going to be the only person in my circle of friends it was going to be doing any sort of kind of music or writing songs or being in a band or composing mm -hmm. or anything when I was in my thirties, I just knew I was going to be doing it for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, you hear the same story from a lot of people who have made it. Um, and then obviously you don't hear about the people who haven't made it, you know, so you can't really, it's, it's really hard to judge, but um, I can't really see a future. Um, for me, that doesn't involve me writing songs or playing music or entertaining people. You know, it just it just seems to be a little bit too ingrained in my personality and a little bit too uh, too in my blood to ignore. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's just something that I mean. You know, when I was um, when I was fifteen or. When I was 15 or so, and um, or maybe 16 or so, I can't remember, 15, 16 or 17, I was in my first band, uh, you know, and we played to a few people in the local venues and whatever, and it was great fun. Mm -hmm. And there's just something about it where you know that's just, it's just something that you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. 
Um, and unfortunately, the music industry, the way it is today, it's made it very difficult for serious songwriters to um, to make uh, to make their way in the world. But um, I mean, in the next five years, there's absolutely no way that I'm that I'm going to have given this up. Right. Good. I mean, that, that's too it's just too ingrained in me i just can't i just can't seem to let go of it you know it's just uh, yeah. you know everybody you know you, it's a bit of a cliche you know a lot of people say oh i was put on this earth to do this or i was put on this planet to do this but i mean jesus i i've definitely been put on this planet to write songs and play play to people and um and uh there's nothing i'd rather do so i'm gonna do that in any respect that i can mm-hmm. you know over the Good. years Good. Um, I, I'm happy to hear that, for one. Um, and I will make sure that I, I link to, you know, all of your, your new music and whatnot, you know, in, in the video. Um, yeah, but please Pete, we, We've got kind of a, a hard stop coming up here, but I, I want to ask you the question that I have started asking everyone at the very end. And nobody yeah, likes yeah. it. You know what it is, right? No, fuck no, what is okay. it? Okay, the, the question is, what is something about you that nobody would know? That nobody would know? Well, not nobody, but I mean, you know, that, that you know, the average person just like, you know, looking at you, like, let's say they, they went and, you know, searched the, the internet all over, you know, found your songs and whatnot, um, and, you know, whatever interviews you had done in the past and whatnot, but something that, that people just wouldn't, it would be surprising to them to, to learn about you. Well, the only interesting fact about about me as a person is that I am actually completely and totally blind in my left eye. Are you really? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I can't see a, a an effing thing out of my left eye. Wow. I was born. I was born with uh, with some sort of scar at the back of my left eye that prevented the optic nerves from developing. Uh huh. So, so I've, I've been sort of living my whole life with this, just, with just looking out of my right eye. Okay. Wow. And the funny thing is, and the funny thing is I, I mean, I've never considered it a disability because I don't know any better, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, like about five or six years ago when 3d movies started be- becoming, um, becoming popular, uh, my cousin and my sister and I, we went to this, uh, it was like the new 3d saw movie, mm-hmm. you know? And we got to the end of the movie and we we're all walking out of the, uh, the cinema. And I said, you know, I didn't really see any 3d. I didn't see any, I didn't see one 3d portion of that movie at all. What, what's going on? Why? Oh, <laughs> it turned out that because, because I can't see out of my left eye, you actually need both eyes for the depth, for the depth percept perception mm-hmm. to actually see the 3d movie you know so i watched this whole 3d movie and i was like what's the big deal it just looks like a 2d movie to me <laughs> oh that's and we were wow. in a theater. We were in a theater and i said i don't get it what's the big deal then we realized later on that because you know i'm half blind that i couldn't see the um the 3d movie so that's the last time i paid for a 3d movie um but yeah, it's something that uh, I guess you wouldn't you wouldn't know about me. No, that that actually now that I'm thinking about it, it makes a lot of sense because I'm as you were saying that I was like going through you know when when we met and I was like, yeah, you always stood to my left, which means you're right. So you could actually <laughs> that's really yeah, funny. So you on you. Yeah, I mean, did you do that on purpose or was it just kind of something 
that just happens. Oh, well, you know, you know, when my girlfriend and I are walking down the street, yeah, she always um, she always walks on my right side, you know, just so I can keep an eye on her. Oh, that's incredible, man. Hey, Pete, <laughs> this is a lot of fun, man. I'm, I'm going to go yeah, ahead and wrap yeah, this up. Well, if you don't mind, stay on for just a couple of seconds after I stop. And yeah, we'll go from there. Yeah. Pete, hey, fucking pleasure, dude. So good to see yeah. you again. Thank Hopefully so in person much, soon. So glad right, we've kept all these years. Cheers, man. Cheers.